Well, good evening, welcome. We are in the uh, fourth lesson out of five in the book of First Thessalonians. So we'll have obviously class tonight and next Wednesday, and then we'll be off a week for Thanksgiving. And then we'll start a short series uh, for Advent, kind of for, it's a Christmas series, and I'm really excited about this one. So I'll, we'll, you'll see it in the church bulletin and online before we do it. But in this lesson, we're gonna continue our study of 1 Thessalonians. So let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together, helping us to uh, study your word. I pray, Lord, it would sink into our minds, into our hearts, and would affect our hands, our actions. Lord, I pray that we would be good examples to the world of what it looks like to be completely following you. I do pray for everyone in the sound of my voice, Lord, for the needs and concerns that we have. We praise you for all the blessings you've given us, some that we recognize and some we're not even aware of. And other things, Lord, we do ask for your help, for your comfort, for those who are grieving, for your healing, for those who are sick. I pray, Father, for your peace for those who are anxious and that your presence would be near us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number for questions, and you can text that anytime during class. Well, in our, we're just literally moving through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we have talked about how early these are, this book, if you remember, it's a letter. We talked about that. This letter was written just a few months after Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone to the Greek city of Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy are the first Christians they'd ever seen, had never heard the gospel before. They preached Christ. Many people come to Christ. Some of the entrenched people there uh, get the government and get a crowd together and Paul is run out of town, so to speak. Well, he goes on to Athens and he goes on to Corinth. He's moving through the nation of Greece and he's concerned about the Christians in Thessalonica. He'd only spent a few weeks there apparently, and he's a little concerned that they're getting social pressure, like, hey, you are those guys that were with Paul, and you guys teach and believe strange stuff. You don't worship all the Greek gods, and you guys are different, and they were experiencing some level of persecution, some economic persecution, some social pressure, and Paul was concerned because they were relatively new Christians. There were things they didn't know and they hadn't lived a Christian life. He didn't get to spend as much time as he wanted. So he sent Timothy back to check on them. Timothy comes back, finds Paul in Corinth, and is, Paul is overjoyed. And the first three chapters of this letter, of course there were no chapters when it was a letter, but what we've divided into groups, chapters, the first three chapters are Paul saying, you guys are doing awesome. You continue to, to uh, follow the teaching, to follow Jesus. Your love for one another is great. I give thanks for you and my prayers to God. And so he's grateful for them. So that letter that he wrote back to them, which is 1 Thessalonians, was written only a few months after they had come to Christ. And so in chapter four, he begins to answer some of the questions they asked Timothy. And in our last lesson, one of their questions was, what happens if some of the fellow Christians died? And Jesus hasn't come back yet. Have they missed out? And so in our last lesson, we looked at the tail end of chapter four is Paul answering that question. Well, as chapter five opens, he goes right into a, a related question. And the question that they've asked 
Also to Timothy is what happens if people die before Jesus comes back? Is it like the lottery, you've gotta be present to win? Or did they just miss out? And he says, no, by no means. And we talked about the resurrection, we talked about the rapture, we talked about the second coming, we talked about all those topics. Well, the next question is, when is Jesus going to come back? When will that happen and what will it look like? And so he just rolls right into answering that question. So we're gonna do the first several verses of chapter five, but I wanna break it into a couple of pieces. So Paul opens by saying this, now concerning the times and seasons, this is him, this is a formula that says, you had a question about what he's calling the times and seasons, meaning when is Jesus going to come back and how will we know? He says, you don't have any uh, need for me to write something to you because you know that the day of the Lord, and I wanna talk about this phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So two related questions that we're gonna talk about is what is the day of the Lord and when will it happen? And so the day of the Lord, we're gonna find is a synonymous idea of the second coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. New Testament, you realize, ah, this is when Jesus comes back. That is the day of the Lord. That's the time of judgment, etc. So you see those two phrases, but he says day of the Lord because that's what they always understood judgment time would be. He uses two interesting examples as far as when. The first is it'll be like a thief in the night, which means you aren't necessarily prepared for that. Thieves try to come when you are asleep or when you're not prepared. In other words, if you catch a thief trying to break into your house, that's an unexpected event. Or when labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Well, you know that this is going to happen, but you don't know exactly when. And that's why it's such a good metaphor for the second coming of Christ. You are certain that it's going to happen, but you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And so he sets the stage, and I'd like to look at some other scriptures that are very supportive of this idea that the day of the Lord is indeed gonna happen, but we do not know when. But what's it going to be like? So let's go back and start in the Hebrew scriptures, and I'm just gonna pick two or three passages. The, day, the whole concept of the day of the Lord is all over the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, because they're talking to Israel and they're looking forward to give Israel hope for the future. So this is Ezekiel chapter 30. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet. He is prophesying after the destruction of Jerusalem so that's 586 BC, 600 years before the New Testament time. And the Jews are realizing that they have failed to keep the covenant and consequently they've been dispersed. And they wonder, is God done with us? And so Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy, meaning go preach and say this, Thus says the Lord God, wail, alas for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. 
That's important to them because what's it saying? It's saying God is going to come and judge the world. The day of the Lord is when justice gets meted out. Israel realizes that they're not sinless, that they too have not been faithful, but they're wondering who is gonna judge these Babylonians? Who's gonna judge the Assyrians? Who's gonna judge all of the nations, the people that don't believe in God, they're bloodthirsty people, will God do justice? And Ezekiel says he certainly will. There will be a day of the Lord which will judge. For them, they thought he's gonna judge our enemies, but you find out, we realize, he's gonna judge all people of all times. This is the great day of the judgment of God. This is an essential concept in the Old Testament, and it's an indispensable idea in the New Testament. And I want you to realize that it wasn't just the Christians that came up with the idea that Jesus was gonna come back, there was going to be a judgment, and God was going to do justice by judging the world. That's not a Christian concept, meaning a New Testament idea. And a lot of times when you listen to preachers and people who wanna talk about prophecy and all of that, you can get the idea that this is a New Testament thing, but this has been part of God's plan from the very beginning. He has this plan of redemption and he has the plan to judge the world. In other words, to set things right and to be just. This is called eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Eschatology is the theological term for the study of the end times. And when we say end times, we're talking about the day of the Lord, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. These are all pretty much synonymous terms. And so the idea of Christ returning, this is the day of reckoning, of judgment, and uh, the day of destruction, the day of, of judging the world. This idea of what happens as history winds up is an essential concept in both Judaism and Christianity. It's essential for two reasons, and this matters to you and to me. One is that history is going somewhere, that there's, God is guiding history. This is completely contrary to a secular humanist worldview. A secular humanist worldview, whatever you think about origins, maybe you're a Darwinist, uh, Darwinian evolution, Whatever you think about the future, which is maybe you're the universe will burn out in another 14 billion years, you know, whatever your opinions are about the beginning and the end, fundamentally secular humans, humanism says life is what it is, it's going nowhere, it's a cold hard universe. If you want a friend, buy a dog, all right? Because there's nobody out there that cares. And so you get the idea that his, there's no meaning in any of this. If there's any meaning in life, you need to make it up yourself. Christian view, biblical view actually, not just Christian, is no, there is a God, he has a plan, and history is going somewhere. In other words, there is a plan to redeem humanity, there is a plan of Christ to reconcile us to God that God will judge the world and he will do justice. The evildoers throughout all of history will indeed receive justice. That's the only reason that you matter. 
Secular humanists, they're gonna say that human life matters, but there's no, absolutely no basis for saying that. Christians, there is. We live in light of God working out a plan. There's a point to history. This isn't random, it isn't meaningless. That's one reason eschatology is really important. It's, it's a key part of the gospel. If you don't have sin and the wrath of God, the redemption of Jesus Christ, and a day of judgment and heaven and hell. I mean, I'm wrapping all that up into, we're going to the end of times when there's justice. If you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. And so what you typically see that in, in America, we'll just stick for, with America for now, when you see people depart from the gospel, what they fundamentally typically do is, I don't really want the sin part, and I really don't like the hell part, and that judgment thing just sounds so scary, it's gonna scare people away and nobody's gonna become a Christian. In fact, Richard Niebuhr, and this is like 70 years ago, in the mid 20th century, he was a theologian, and he said, this is what, quote, liberal Christianity can be summarized by this, and listen to what he said. He said, this is the essence of liberal Christianity. He said, a God without wrath came to people without sin to usher in a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So what is he saying? Anytime you liberalize the gospel, what you tend to get rid of is any of this eschatological part. I mean, there's no sin that has to be dealt with. There's not gonna be a judgment. There's no heaven, there's no hell. Well, everybody's okay with heaven. Most people just don't really like the hell idea that much, right? So when, when you see Christianity being watered down, it's usually this part, but this is the essence of Christianity. If you don't have the concept of sin, then why in the world is Jesus dying on the cross? If you don't have the idea of judgment, then how in the world can you worship a God who won't do justice? in the world. Do you see what I'm saying? You cannot take that piece out of the gospel and still have the same God and still have the gospel. So this eschatological, I know I went on about that a little bit, but the eschatological essence of the gospel, any gospel that gets preached to you that doesn't have that piece to it is not the gospel. It, it just isn't. It's not Christianity because you've taken out the essential pieces. I, I say this a lot. If if you don't believe in sin as a problem, then the gospel is a solution running around looking for a problem. Does that make sense? You got a Christ who died on a cross, but you're trying to figure out what for? I'm trying to figure out why he did that, because I don't have a problem. Well, the essence of of this is there is a problem in the world. There is sin in the world. There is evil in the world. And you will either be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ and the love of God on the cross, or you will indeed suffer the justice of God. This is an essential idea. So going on, book of Joel, it's another Old Testament prophet. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It is a day of darkness and gloom. You get this idea of judgment, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains of great and powerful people, like there has never been before nor ever will begin after, be again after them through the years of all the generations. 
This language in the Old Testament is talking about the coming of the Lord and the dispensing of justice, the judgment. When you read the book of Revelation, you're going to see this exact same idea fleshed out quite a bit. This starts to sound a lot like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath in the book of Revelation. And you realize, whoa, things are going to get serious at the end of times. And I want you to know that started a thousand years before Jesus. That's always been part of God's plan. Uh, Second Peter, this is, not, this is also an idea that's in the New Testament. So this is a New Testament book. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. So this is Peter saying the exact same thing Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. And, but listen to what he says. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I want you to think the universe is going to be destroyed. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This sounds like serious uh, issue here, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what you read in Revelation. Is the present earth and heavens, and I want you to just think the universe, is passes away and a new heaven and a new earth, a new universe, new existence comes in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That's how the New Testament ends. Joel again, because the day of the Lord is really, really negative but it's at the same time, it's really, really positive. Listen to Joel say this, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That sounds a lot like the book of Revelation. And Joel is written 700 years before the book of Revelation. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord had said, and among the survivals will be those whom the Lord has called. So the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, is the worst news possible if you don't have Jesus Christ. And it is the best news you could get if you do have Jesus Christ. And that's why the gospel, by the way, is referred to as... Uh, a sword, you know, it, it divides the soul and the spirit. It divides bone and marrow. The word of God is a living and active sword. Why is he talking about this? Because there's two sides to the gospel. What Jesus did on the cross, you as followers of Christ, think about that is hallelujah. What great and awesome love of God that he would reconcile me to the father. We're saved by grace through faith. That is good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. At the exact same time, that is the worst thing that could ever have happened if you don't have Jesus Christ. That is one of those uh-oh moments. Like God is real and I got a, he's got a real issue with me and I got a lot of sin and I got nothing. And so judgment day is gonna be a day of celebration and it's gonna be a day of mourning. And that's why you see both of those talking about the day of the Lord. 
This is Jesus talking about when is that gonna happen? So all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the second coming is gonna happen, but when? The gospel's really clear about this. Jesus says this, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of God, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, if you remember the days of Noah, you've got a lot of evil, people are saying everything's gonna be fine. Noah starts building an ark, everybody says, you are nuts. Uh, everything's going great. In fact, we're having a drought, weather's beautiful. And he says, just as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man, second coming of Christ. For as in those days before the blood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, meaning they were just going about their lives until the day that Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it will come when the world is saying, Things seem to be going fine here. I really don't know what your Jesus thing is, but I'm doing fine without him. And so the idea is, what is the day of the Lord? It's the coming of Christ, it's the day of judgment. When will it come? And the New Testament's very clear. It is not known when it's gonna come. It's gonna come like labor pains on a pregnant woman. It will happen, but you don't know when. And that's what always interests me, and I put this as a question for discussion on your handout is, if the Bible is so clear that we don't know when it is, why do so many Christians spend so much time trying to figure out when Jesus is gonna come back? It, that just seems like one of the more pointless exercises to me. And the, and the point you're gonna see in this passage in Thessalonians, Paul isn't going to try and tell them when he's gonna come back, he's going to tell them something far more important than that. So Jesus himself says, Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Be on guard, stay awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So what it seems to be Jesus' point. You don't know when, you just know it's gonna come, so what? So be alert, be awake. And it's this idea of living with the knowledge of the coming of Christ. That's the, that, the eschatology, that's the second reason that eschatology matters. One is history's going somewhere, God is in control, there really is a plan happening here. The second is that's actually one of the reasons why Christians are so diligently following Christ is you know that the day of the Lord is coming. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's gonna say. What you need to know about the day of the Lord is not when is it gonna happen, because no one knows, but you need to know it's gonna happen because that's why you will, in Jesus' words, stay awake, be on guard. Question. Yes, um, do you think that Paul knew exactly how this would all play out? Obviously, he didn't know when, Jesus didn't know when, but in his description, do you think he had a vision for how this would all play out? Good question. So how much does Paul know about this? Um, it seems to me uh, to be consistent with just scripture and the way scripture works is this is inspired, meaning Paul isn't just dreaming this up. You saw that Peter and Paul are saying the same thing. I mean, pretty odd if two guys just came up with the same idea about how the world's gonna end. The Holy Spirit is telling them what to say, kind of like a thus saith the Lord, remember back in Ezekiel? The Spirit is telling them that in the day of the Lord, it's gonna come just as Jesus said at a time that you don't expect. 
it will most certainly come. It will be a terrible, awful day for those without Christ because it will be the day of judgment. And so this is what Paul knows, and that's what he's writing to them. Does he know every, here's the interesting question, does he know all the details that are in the book of Revelation, which was written 30 years after he had died? I think not. He might, but that's not what he writes here. I don't think God tells, told any of the apostles more than they necessarily needed to know. It's not like it was a big, great big secret. It's just Joel knew a little bit. Paul knows a little bit more. John, by the time of the book of Revelation, more has been revealed to him. So they are messengers of God and they know what the Spirit has told them, but it's clear that the Spirit does not tell everybody everything. For example, Daniel, this is one example that makes me think this, in the book of Daniel, if you remember, he's told at one point, he said, the visions that you see now, seal those up. It's not time for that to be known. So there clearly are things that haven't been communicated until the time to communicate them. There's a reason the book of Revelation is written 60 years after the resurrection and not 800 years before when some of the other prophets were writing. So that's a long-winded way of saying it seems to me that God reveals what we need to know when we need to know it. So my personal opinion would be Paul didn't know everything about this. I actually think that's pretty nice. I think God sometimes tells us what we need to know and I think it's good because I think if God, just think about this, if God showed you everything that was gonna happen in the rest of your life, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? It would be a very bad thing. I don't know if I have faith that's big enough to handle everything that's coming, but I have faith that's big enough to handle what's next. And that will make my faith stronger and then I will be able to handle what's next. So I think not. Uh, I think Paul told them what the Spirit wanted them to know. How do you explain Jesus not knowing uh, when the end would come, even though he is part of the Trinity and has the mind of God? Okay, so this is a Trinity question and I exclude all Trinity questions. Uh, <laughs> this is a mystery. The Trinity is a, is, is, is a mystery. It is a fundamental core belief because it's a biblical idea that God is one and three one God in three personalities. And there is this idea of unity and this idea of oneness in the Trinity. It's almost impossible to use an illustration of the Trinity that isn't heretical. Meaning, not like you'll get shot or something, but what, you know, burned at the stake. But what I'm saying is, the approximations of the Trinity never get there. Like, if you were to say, well, there's one God, but he's expressed in three different ways. Well, that's not actually the Trinity, but it's at least something you can get your head around, but it's not true, you know? Well, God's kind of like ice and water and steam, you know? Well, you can get your head around that, but it's not true. That's not actually what the Trinity is. So, first of all, I just want a disclaimer that it's very hard for us to understand that other than as a matter of faith. I believe that's beyond our understanding. So, then you get back to the idea of how does Jesus not know because you have three personalities? But isn't he God? Yes, because they're one. Okay. 
That's my answer to that question. That is the Trinity right there. No, I'm serious. That's like as good as I can get on that. Does Jesus having emptied himself have to do with that? You know, that, that's really an astute point. So you're talking about Philippians chapter two. Uh, it's a passage called the kenosis for uh, Jesus, have this mind amongst you that Jesus had amongst him, who even though he was equal to God, like he's in the Trinity, I'm gonna paraphrase, he's in the Trinity, did not consider being in the Trinity something to hold on to. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And there's a temptation to say, it's sort of like, okay, so if if you get your iPhone here, there's certain data that's actually on this device, and if I don't have Wi-Fi, I still have some data. But there are a lot of things I don't have until I get Wi-Fi, because I stored a lot of the stuff in the cloud. Does that make sense? That's that idea. That's heresy. Okay, let's move on. It's like, no, I'm kidding. That is a great point. But Jesus is God and man. And I understand what I'm saying to you now. It's like, Terry, this does not make linear sense. That is true. This does not make linear. When I say that, it is not easily understandable. Jesus really is God and he really is man. He's not partly God, uh, emptied himself and only took a certain amount of data and then conveniently forgot the rest. That really doesn't square with the scriptures. So I know that answer is not satisfactory, but the scriptures won't let us fudge it. Does that make sense? The scriptures present that as, yep, that's what it is. I don't understand it. I know. And that's what it is. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be tacky here. I'm just saying that is what the scripture teaches. And you go, well, that didn't make sense to me. And I go, okay, I don't expect everything about an infinite God to make sense to me. And that's one that doesn't make easy, put it in a box kind of sense. Okay. I have a few questions about specific signs of the end times, which I'm not going to ask you. Okay. But um, how do you reconcile scripture telling us that we won't know the day or the hour, but that there will be specific signs of the end times? You know, we might hold that thought because I've been thinking about when we do the in January, I don't think I've taught the book of Revelation for four or five years. And so it might be time to do it again uh, so we can get it in before the 24 elections so you'll know what's gonna happen. <laughs> so. I'm not trying to be uh, facetious, but actually that would be a great question when we study Revelation, because you're right. There there are things in the book of Revelation that some people take to say, ah, we're gonna figure out when the end time happens. But that's not the only way to read Revelation. So I'll probably just say hold on that, because it's a very good question, it's a valid question. Okay. Book of Acts, Uh, this is the ascension of Christ, but in the book of Acts he says, you will see the Son of Man, you'll see Jesus coming the way he left. And so he's caught up into the clouds. Remember when we talked about the rapture, he'll come in the clouds? It's the undoing of, of this, the ascension. So when they'd come together, this is disciples and Jesus after the resurrection, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, wow, this is awesome. We, you came back from the dead. Are you gonna be king now? And are we gonna go do this whole kick the Romans out thing? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. 
Only the Father knows. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, my preachers, my evangelists in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he doesn't answer the question. He's like, you guys have no idea. You're still not figured this thing out. I'm going to ascend to heaven. You're going to go preach this word and then I'm going to come back because God wants the whole world to be saved. And this is the time in which we live right now. So why talk about the end of the world? This is a great quote from a theologian. And this tells you why Paul is talking about this in Thessalonians. The purpose of the whole discussion is pastoral, not speculative. And that's when we, get, when we cover the book of Revelation, I wanna talk about that. That book is pastoral more than it is informative. Does that make sense? That book's intention is not so much to explain to you signs you can figure out when the world's gonna end as to reassure you that God will indeed do justice in the world, that he knows where you are and that your suffering is in his hands. Paul demonstrates no interest in fueling an apocalyptic perspective, meaning talking about eschatology and end times, to hypothesize about the end times or to foster some escapism. The teaching about final events is meant to inform and encourage them in their daily life and conduct. Clear thinking about the end is designed to help them live as true Christians in the present. This is the point of this letter and this is the point of all end time discussions is to help us live the Christian life in the present. That's why it's important for us, and we'll study the book of Revelation, not so you can figure out when the end times is coming so you can time your stock sales at the right time. The whole point of that is to encourage and help us live the Christian life right now. So this is our uh, diagram on the end times as understood by dispensational premillennials. So you ha here's what you were living here. This is us. And the rapture is going to happen if you believe in the rapture as a separate event from the second coming. Just if, you, if that's confusing, watch the last lesson. We talked about it in detail. This view sees the rapture as a separate event and that in between there is a seven year period of trials or tribulation. And when Christ comes, he will reign on earth for a thousand years and then you will see the final judgment. This is one way of looking at it and it's more, probably the most complicated way. Most people think the second coming of Christ and the rapture and the final judgment all happen at the same time. But the reason I wanted to point this out to you is this is how people get into the end times without it being about how to live the Christian life now. This view, and I'm not trying to critique this view, I'm simply saying if you are not careful, you can get real focused on when that rapture is gonna happen and exactly how bad that tribulation is going to be and exactly you know, what's gonna happen in, at Armageddon, and this Armageddon's happening here, second coming of Christ, that what's Armageddon gonna be, and is, is Iran and uh, Russia and China, are they all gonna be bad guys, or, you know, you can really get wrapped around the axle about the end times around this, but Paul's point is, the whole purpose of talking about this is to help you live the Christian life now. So, for example, uh, 
he says this, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So you see what he's doing? He's saying, I don't wanna talk about the end times so you'll get really fixated on the end times. I wanna talk about the end times so that you can apply it to why would I then live a godly life now? And I'm gonna flip back here because let me just tell you about the rapture index. And we'll talk about this more in the Revelation series, but if you're really looking at the book of Revelation and you're equating it to geopolitical events, okay, then you are trying to predict how close we are to the rapture so that we can all get out of here before all that bad stuff starts to happen that kind of becomes an end in itself. You can go online, which I did this morning to check so I could give you accurate information. There is a thing called the rapture index. What is that? Is that in the Bible? No, it is not. It is people looking at the current world situation, looking at the, the signs in Revelation, trying to figure out how close are we. Current rapture index, I know you're wondering, is 187. Okay, Terry, what does that mean? How close are we? Okay, so 130 to 160 means there's very heavy prophetic activity. It'll typically get in this area when Iran's doing something really bad or when Russia's doing something or China's invading somebody, you think, ah, we're getting close. 187, Terry, that's way above heavy. Yes, that's called <laughs> hold on. It's like seriously close, okay? I don't know if that's because of the elections. I don't know if that's because of Taiwan. I don't know they, okay, it sounds like I'm being facetious and I'm not really trying to be. I'm not trying to be, belittle anything. I am really trying hard to make this one point. Focusing on figuring out when Jesus is gonna come back is not the point of any of this. Paul's point is this, he says, you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you. You don't know when it's gonna happen, but you're going to be ready because we belong to the day. So let us be sober. I wanna retranslate this word. You're gonna, it's gonna make more sense if you think of it as self-control. I mean, it does actually mean sober, not drunk, not out of control, but it'll be translated a lot, self-controlled, meaning you, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You're no longer a slave to sin. There are so many things that no longer tempt you. You're not living like an animal, pursuing the lusts of your flesh. This is the way the Bible talks about it. You're self-controlled. In other words, the Spirit of God within you is making you holy. And so what he's saying is the whole point of knowing that's coming is to live a godly and holy life now not to try and figure out when it's happening. So that's the point I really wanna make, is the idea that God has not destined us for wrath. What's he saying? The day of the Lord is gonna be a terrible time, but not for you, because you're not destined for wrath. You've been reconciled to God. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's going to be a great day for you. This idea of light and dark is all over the scriptures as well. And I want you to see that day of the Lord is a theme, but the light and the dark is a theme. 
as well. And the idea is light and dark, doesn't have anything to do with when it's gonna happen. The point is, when it happens, there are gonna be people who are living in the light and people that are living in the dark. And that's the division. That's the judgment. But you are children of the day. That idea has been around. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, Qumran Scrolls, talk about the faithful to God are the sons of light. And there are sons of darkness, children of darkness, and they will be destroyed at the day of the Lord. So this light-dark theme runs through the scriptures. Here's Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness meaning you used to live in darkness, meaning you used to live lives that were uh, not godly lives. We were following our own self-interest and we had pride and power and lust and greed and all of the fulfillment of self things. But he has taken us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the light. Jesus is gonna use the same Phrasing. Here's John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of humanity. Jesus is the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness. This is a great way to think about the coming of Christ. This world is... Jesus said, Satan is the ruler of this present age. And so Christ comes into the world and brings light into the darkness. And we then have been transferred from the domain of darkness into light. That's called salvation. That's a really good way to think about salvation. Probably a better way to think about salvation. This is how you understand that. For example, in John chapter eight and John chapter nine, Jesus is gonna say, I am the light of the world. And so this idea of light and darkness, light coming into the world. And one of my favorite passages is John 3.16, but I actually like the whole passage. So listen to what John 3.16 actually says, if you read the whole thing. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever places their trust in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. That implies judgment, doesn't it? Why would I perish? Because of the wrath of God that's coming on all unrighteousness and ungodliness. I just quoted Romans chapter one. You can see this everywhere. The whole point of the gospel is to rescue you from the darkness, to rescue you from the wrath of God, to rescue you from destruction on the day of judgment to rescue you from having to give an accounting to God and having nothing to say. All those words are synonymous. That's what salvation actually is. It's a good way to think about it. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that's true. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He will come again to judge the world. Does that make sense? Some people say, well, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. No, and you better take advantage of that. He came to save us. Because when he comes back, he's not gonna be cuddly bear Jesus. This is going to be, you read the book of Revelation, he's going to come on a white horse and he's going to slay all of the unrighteous. This is judgment. Jesus comes as a savior and as the conquering king and as the judge. So he says, he didn't send him into the condemned world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already doomed 
because he has not believed in the Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness more than the light because their works were evil. Everything, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that these things have been carried out by God. So the whole idea of talking about the end times is to say, stop and think about where you are now. The certainty of judgment is coming. And the certainty of light and dark, the certainty of good and evil, heaven and hell is coming. What then does that mean for me now? If I'm not a Christian, it means I need to be reconciled to God and thank goodness to Jesus Christ that God made a way for that to happen. I could not have done that on my own. If you are a follower of Christ, what that says to you is I need to be vigilant and awake, self-controlled or sober. Don't slack off, but set your eyes firmly on Jesus and follow him. So your destiny, we go to Ephesians chapter one, it says, God chose you, I've quoted this before, now I wanna emphasize the second half of it. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight when Jesus comes again. The whole destiny, your destiny, is to become like Jesus Christ, to be set apart and become like him. Knowing that he will return means, well, I wanna be busy at becoming like him. I don't wanna wait around, I wanna be more and more like him so that when he comes, we will be like him. The eschatology is the motivation for us. We desperately wanna see Jesus and when we do, we kinda of wanna be wearing our nice clothes. I mean, maybe that's a way to think about it. Does that make sense? If you knew that, I don't know, somebody important was coming to your house, you weren't sure when, but you knew it was gonna be this week, you'd pick up around the house a little bit, right? You'd probably wanna make sure the place was clean. Well, think of that on steroids. If you know Jesus is coming again when he comes, I don't wanna be embarrassed like, oh my goodness, wasn't expecting you. I gotta pick up my life a little bit here. I've been slacking off. No, you would say, I want Jesus to be, to be found faithful. Not perfect, faithful. Like, hey, I've been following you every day and I am so glad you're here. Does that make sense? That's what the second coming is all about. Is it's the reason, added reason, that we live following Christ every day because you don't know when this will happen. And Paul ends this section of Thessalonians by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So he ended the section about those who have died will come back. They will actually be raised first. So encourage one another. Don't grieve like the rest of people who don't have any hope at all. And he ends this section the same way. He says, so encourage one another. Encourage one another for what? Encourage one another to keep following Christ. This is not a Lone Ranger deal. This is a communal thing. The church, God didn't have to make the church, the collection, but he did. Why? Because at any given time, some of you are suffering. Some of you are being tempted. Some of you are undergoing hard times. And at that time, others are coming alongside and say, our Lord is coming back. God will set things right. You have faith to see this through and I will walk it with you. That's what he means. 
he says, remind each other to stay on the path, to keep following Christ. And every one of us is gonna go through the downtime and it's gonna be really nice to have a hand through that time. That's what you are to each other. And so Paul takes a question about the end of the world and says, well, that's actually not the major question. Given that it's gonna happen, the major thing I wanna teach you is keep following Christ and help each other to follow Christ. Does that make sense? That's what's important about the end of the world is that we help each other continue to persevere and follow Christ. And the times we most need each other's help, times we need to lean on each other's faith is when our times are hardest. And there will always be someone in your family, this family of Christ, that is gonna come walk along with you at that time, okay? So how does he end this letter? Because we're at the very end. So he's answered their two questions. Now he wants to tell them something. He wants to teach them what it looks like to live the Christian life. And the tail end of Thessalonians is very staccato. It's like, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, but don't do that, definitely don't do that. Do this, do this, do this. In other words, he's gonna describe what living the Christian life in light of eternity, that's a good way to say it, you've probably heard this before, live in light of eternity. Live with one eye on eternity. That's what Paul's talking about here. Live now because you know eternity is coming. It's a great way to think about it. Well, he's gonna finish the letter with his final admonitions and say, here are the kinds of things I'm talking about. That is what it looks like to live with one eye on eternity. And that's what we're gonna talk about next time. And so after next week, no excuses. You're gonna actually have to do this now that you know, okay? So read ahead. Read the tail end of this and come with your questions because this is really rich at the very end of this letter. of What does it look like to live the Christian life knowing that eternity is coming? I'll see you next time. Thanks.